Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Ozband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Chagiga, daf kaf hey, page 25. So today we're picking up the Gemara right directly on the Mishnah from the end of yesterday. in uvegalil lo. You'll recall that I said that the the there's this leniency, or perhaps it's a chumr, depending on how you look at it, right? The stringency uh, is presented as a stringency, that in Yehuda, in the area of Judea, the everybody was considered trustworthy with regard to their wine. A- any wine that was considered to be consecrated um, was considered, uh, anybody could have handled it and it was considered fine during the wine press, uh, the pressing time and the olive pressing time. Specifically, Amehaaretz were also considered that were fine. Then um, if they were to bring uh, wine to be um, to the Kohen, whatever they were, it was considered imp- it was considered pure, it was all fine, and so on. Meaning, I direct you back to the Mishnah. But the point is that the Gemara here says very specifically that the Mishnah that's teaching this trust with regard to Abe Haaretz is specific to Yehuda and not to the Galil. And the Gemara wants to know why. So you have to picture the a map of the land of Israel. Reish Lakish says that there's a strip of land that was inhabited by the Kutim. The Kutim, we've discussed this in the past, that they were the Shomronim, the Samaritans, and they lived like, you know, in a, basically uh, a stripe across the land of Israel, separating from the Galil um, to, you know, between the Galil in the north and Yehuda, in the area of Jerusalem and so on, to the south. So the issue then is, of course, or predominantly by non-Jews, then that land itself was considered ritually impure. And then once the, you've got a land that's impure, you can't transport food, you know, the, the wine and the oil, you can't transport them through that land and consider them pure when they get to their destination in Judea. Right? That's the concern. So even oil or wine that had been prepared by Chaveri, meaning people who in general were very careful about issues of Tumantara, if they lived in the Galil, then those same products were not accepted in the temple for korban, right, for sacrifice. Now the Gemara has a question on this. So the Gemara says, well, let the people who live in the Galil put their wine or their oil, whatever, in a closed box, right, something that is the kind of thing, a chest, a a tower, right? Meaning so a closet, I guess, really, right? That it can not can it cannot become impure to begin with because it has its own status as its own separate tent, as it were. Now, of course, the problem is that we, of course, have not yet learned ohalot in terms of all of these different domains for Tumantara. But the point here is that there is a way that you can, you know, have a I don't know, a large receptacle, right? That's considered its own its own presence, so to speak, where you it's would its not... It's its own domain. That's how I would think of it. It's its own domain, so it, it's, it doesn't take a fantuma from another domain. Right. Or from, or from an entity within another domain. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, the person who's outside of it can't give it to, uh, impurity. So why not do that? And then travel, you know, have that um, domain, right? Have it be transported through the land of the Kutim. Hamani. So the Gemara says, well, who are we talking about here? Whose Mishnah, whose opinion is this Mishnah? That's going to have an impact on whether you think that you could do this to begin with, this whole 
you know, the, the loophole or the, the workaround, rather. Rabbi, the Gemara answers, it's Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. The Amar Ohel Zaruk Lav Shmei Ohel. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is the person who said that uh, an Ohel that is thrown, meaning a moving tent, is not really considered an Ohel. It's not really considered its own tent. It's not really considered its own domain. It wouldn't have the status that it would not attain impurity through contact from somebody outside of it. Vitania, and we've got the Brita here that says, Meaning, Rabbi Huda Hanasi specifically said that exactly this case, he considered it a case that would would be left or would leave the items inside impure. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Huda, Mitaher. And as compared to Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Huda, um, where he said that it was fine. But if our Mishnah is in accord with Rabbi Huda Hanasi, then Rabbi Huda Hanasi himself wouldn't see this as a workaround, and therefore he's got this concern about uh, about the Galil. Um, and the Gemara has another difficulty. I mean, I would say, you know, we can try a different suggestion. The light tool, the light who bechli cheres umukaf samid patil. So let's do this. Put the oil or the wine, right, in an earthenware vessel, meaning a kli cheres, and seal it with a very tightly bound cover. And now that cover, you still, you were not going to be able to contract impurity because even if we're in a, the same tent as an avlatuma with a dead body, let's say, well, we know, right, from psukim and so on, that the, the presumption is that the vessel has to be open. The moment it's covered and tightly bound, then it's not going to be rendered impure. Uh, so Rabbi Elijah says, well, the, there's a breita that says specifically Kodesh, meaning sacrificial food, is not does not have that exemption from impurity by a tightly bound cover. Meaning that might be fine for truma and that might be fine for, you know, regular, regular chulin that, you know, you would say it hasn't come in contact with, with impurity. But when you're talking about Kodesh in particular, it is in fact considered an issue. Matanya Nevegamar wants to ask on that. We have a brighter that says that the water of purification, right? Meaning the water that has the ashes in it from the red heifer, that is not considered protected from being impure, even if it's in a vessel with a tightly bound cover. Meaning, are you saying that's for real? Because shouldn't that water like retain its purity? And my love, the Gemara says, the Gemara says, that particular case um, is we've got a special stringent, we've got a special chumrah, whatever, restriction for that specific water. Meaning it's not the same category as other Kodesh, which is actually not that confusing, I think. I mean, I think it makes sense that the very water that is supposed to be pure, that is supposed to purify isn't necessarily considered food from Korbanot in the same kind of way. But the question here of the Gemara is to say, look, we've got a tightly bound cover case of Kodesh that does fulfill the exemption, shouldn't that be enough? The Gemara doesn't like it. So the Gemara says, water that has not yet been consecrated, meaning the same water, if it hasn't yet been mixed with the ashes of the red heifer, is, you know, won't that be saved from um, impurity with a tightly bound cover? And that's what the, that's the claim that the Brita says. So let's read this more, uh, let's read it back. 
Instead of saying that we're talking about um, the the red heifer, we know that the chaverim, the people who are careful about tumentara, would purify their wine and their oil, meaning they paid attention to these standards to begin with in the galil. And if they pay attention to those standards in the galil, then isn't the assumption that they're actually aiming for it to be used in for korban, right? Otherwise, what's the point? So they must have had some way to get it to the Beit HaMikdash. So the Gemara says, well, they couldn't really get the things to the Yerushalayim at that time, but what they would do is they would leave them in their place, and the plan was that when Eliyahu and Avi would come, meaning the implication is in the time of the Messiah, and he will purify the road from the Galil to Yehuda. And then those things will all be eligible to use, which is a very great plan, except for, you know, Rahman al-Islam, we know just how long it has been. Um, and, um, you know, it's not a very practical use of their oil and wine. Yeah, but there's something so poignant about that, like knowing that what you prepare isn't ever going to be allowed to be used. And yet you prepare it each year with the hope that maybe you will be, it will get to be used. I know it's very, it's very um, impressive, I think. And also it's a show of faith, you know, they didn't know how long it was going to be. Yeah, for sure. But I, but you know, this whole thing that there was like this whole strip, strip of land that basically, you know, made everything tame. And therefore, if you live north of that, I, I just think it makes that sort of uh, the distance between Yerushalayim and the Galil even that much bigger. Yes, agreed, agreed. It was a real, like a real impediment, I would say. Yeah, and and then to think about all these people who would want their oil or wine to go up to the Beit Hamikdash, and they just weren't allowed to do it. I I don't know. There's something about it that like, it doesn't feel like in a way like the Jews were in control of their own land. Um, I I, I can't explain it, but you had this sort of strip that interrupted there. It's a, it, it's a very fascinating passage. Um, also, I want to. I just want to remember that you know all of this discussion is taking place after the Beit Hamikdash, right? So it's not entirely clear to me that during the time of the Beit Hamikdash, when they would actually be having korbanot, that nobody from the Galil was sending their stuff to the temple, right? Like you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that I hear the, that. That's a fair that's point. We're at it later, and there's a concern about the kutim, and I suppose that we really need to do a deep dive into the historical reality of. How, you know, when did the Samaritans end up there as compared to the Beit HaMikdash itself? How how long were they dominant there in a way that they got in the way of people coming? I, you know, whatever. A lot of open questions for a non-Daf Yomi discussion. Um, so I'm going to move on to a very interesting case that takes place at the bottom of Amad Aleph and goes to Amad Bet. I mean, essentially, we've been talking about this so far, this relationship between the Yama Aretz and the Chaver, but this is really the Daf that digs very deep into that relationship, right? What can an Amharitz be trusted for? What can an Amharitz not be trusted for? And so the Gemara mentions, So in the Mishnah, it talked about, right, that once the period of the wine press and the olive press have passed, the Amharitz, you know, brings to a Chaber priest a barrel of Truma wine, he cannot accept it from him. In other words, they can only accept the 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 chaver coin can only accept this from an during the period of time when the wine and olive presses are afterwards, they cannot. 
Um, and uh, But what can they do? The giver, the Amaharits, can leave it for the following wine press season. So in other words, the, the Amaharits could sort of put it aside and then bring it the following year. And so Bel Mine Rav Sheshen. So they raised this question before Rav Sheshen. Avar so they said, okay, if uh, if let's say you have a priest, right, who actually by he violated this halacha, and he actually accepted this wine from an am ha'aretz, what does he do, right? Um, does he actually just leave it for himself then for the next year? In other words, is he allowed? Is the chaver kohen is he allowed to leave it the wine press, right? Because since you can accept wine and oil of an am ha'aretz right? That was intentionally basically left over. If the Chaver, you know, Cohen accepts it, could the Chaver Cohen also leave it over to the next time? And so Rav Sheshis answers, right? So he says, you learned this actually in a Mishnah. And now they quote a Mishnah from Demai, which again is one of those parrots, those Masachtot of Mishnah that appears in Zoran, that there's no Babli on at all. So it's always interesting when it appears in the Babli. So it's in Demai, uh, chapter six, uh, Mishnah nine. And it's a very interesting case, right? We have so far been talking about Chaver and Amharat as sort of like different groups of people. But we have not explored the notion of uh, what happens if there's a Chaver in a family or an Amharat in a family. And so this Mishnah presents this case. Chaver Amharat. Let's say you have a Chaver and an Amha'aretz who are basically brothers and they inherit property from their father who's also an Amha'aretz, okay? Yachol Marlo, the Chaver can basically say to his Amha'aretz brother, Tola tachitin shemimkom poloni, v'ani chitin shemimkom poloni. So he could say to his Amha'aretz brother, you take wheat in this place and I will take wheat that's in this place. In other words, the Chaver knows, right, that this, the, the first batch, the batch that he wants to give his Amat's, Amat's, his Amha'aretz brother was somehow made susceptible to Tuma and he wouldn't be, be able while the latter batch, the one that the Chaver wants, was not susceptible to Tuma. So he's basically allowed to give the one that's susceptible to Tuma to his Amha'aretz brother. He knows that brother's not going to be careful. He can make sure he gets the one that's not susceptible to Tuma. Tula tayayin shabimakom poloni, baniyayin shabimakom poloni. Right? And the same thing this Mishnah says, right? The Chaber brother can say to the Amharat's brother, you take the wine that's in this place and I will take the wine in the other place. And again, what the Mepharshim explains there is the Chaber knows that this latter, you know, this other bag of wine has not been made tame, and so he'll take that. So the idea is that when we have brothers that inherit sort of a, a certain amount of an item, right, they will each end up having to share it and, and each get an equal amount. So basically, you know, the, the, the Chaber brother sort of has to think about, uh, you know, what, what part of it does he want? He wants the part that's obviously Tahor, and we allow this to happen. We don't consider this to be a, a, a trade or a business, you know, exchange or anything like that. It's just dividing up the state. About Lo Yamarlo, but the Chaber brother cannot say to the Amharad's brother, Tola Tolach Baniyabesh. You take the wet produce and I'll take the dry produce. I'll take the wheat, you take the barley, right? So in other words, you can't do this type of splitting it up to different types. So one brother can say, I'll take wheat and I'll take, you know, if the brother says, I'll take wheat and the other barley, right? 
the Haber one, it's not allowed to sell or transfer anything that's impure or produce uh, to the Am Haaretz brother, basically. This is what it's basically saying. So, um, and the reason for this would be because of that Pasuk in Vayikra, chapter 19, verse 14, that says, you know, that you can't put a stumbling block, literally means before the blind. But the idea basically here is, is that he's not allowed to, you can split it up equally, even if you know that the Am Haaretz brother is not going to be as careful. But you can sort of purposefully, but it has to be of the same item. But you can't pick out items that are not the same, right, to give to the Am Haaretz brother. That, that's something that the Haver brother is not actually, uh, is not actually allowed, allowed to do. So then the, the they, then they quote a Brisek here, um, you know, that, right, that says, Right, so this Bryce is teaching, right, referring to this previous Mishnah, that let's say the Chaber brother does get a share of some items that are wet and some are dry. The Chaber has to actually burn the wet produce if it was Truma, because his father was an Amha'aretz, and therefore it can't be trusted that that Truma is okay. And so he has to, we, we assume, right, for sure the Truma could have been Tame, and therefore he has to burn it. But with the dried produce, right, which we assume did not become Tame, uh, that he is actually uh, allowed to give. Then the Gemara wants to know, why would that be the case? Uh, so he says, so then the Gemara says, why does he have to burn that wet truma? He says, let him leave it over using the same thing as the wine press. So in other words, during the time where truma from the Amaaretz is considered to be pure, right, which is basically during the wine press season, right? So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you could actually just sort of leave that wet truma over that you inherited from your Amaaretz father and just leave it to the next wine press season, right? And this would, you know, basically resolve this, you know, whole issue that was, that, that they were discussing with Rav Shesha. And so what they say is, what they're referring to in this mission, in this brisa is actually something that does not have a wine press. In other words, it's actually referring to liquids that are never used in the temple in, in the Beit HaMikdash. And um, the Amaretz is only going to be careful about liquids that could be used in the Beit HaMikdash. But if it's a regular liquid, that would never be used in Beit HaMikdash. We just have to assume that they never were careful. So then they say, and this is very interesting. So they say, so let's leave it for the regal for the festival. And this we're going to learn in a later Mishnah tomorrow, right? Because there's a Mishnah on the next page that's going to teach us that we assume that when it comes to the regalim, right? When everybody has to come up for the festivals, then in Am Ha'aretz, all the Am Ha'aretz are actually careful of all these laws of Tum and Tara. So they say, okay, so just let him leave it for the next regal, and then he could use it. So the Gemara answers, something that wouldn't last until the regal. In other words, it's something that would actually spoil beforehand. So still this question that was an or- originally given to uh, Rav Sheshet, whether or not they could just leave this barrel over uh, if, a, if a Chaver priest acts it, you know, even purposefully, took uh, something from an Amhar, it's not during the actual wine press season or oil press season, could he leave it over for the next season? They don't really come to a good answer of this. What I am more interested in is this idea that even within families, you could have had somewhere a Chaver, somewhere an Amhar, 
how does that actually, you know, affect inheritance? And uh, I, I, and again, the, the, I will explore this more tomorrow, but just sort of coming attractions, this idea that we sort of say there are certain times of the year that we just assume the Amehaaretz were more careful is also very interesting. Like the assumption is even the Amehaaretz understood there were certain times of the year that they needed to be more careful. I find it fabulous. I find it to be so real, right? Like the, this is, you know, we talk about how there's no whitewashing going on here, right? This idea that families were different and different people in different families had different sensitivities and different levels of observance and different, you know, how how far they're internalizing their handling of Tumantara. I feel like we all nowadays can recognize this as a truth about, you know, different families have different levels of observance of of you know, how religious somebody is, how non-religious somebody is. It's different. I'm not saying it's the same, but but the fact that people are can be within one family and be different, um, I think is is kind of universal. Yeah, but I again it's none of it is said with any judgment. I I, I just I know I keep repeating myself on this. It's just practical halakha to help you solve that particular situation. But there's right, none right. of it is said great. with judgment. It's like, yeah, of course you could have a family brother and a chaber brother and an Amhammer's brother. And so it's just giving you the tools of chaber brother. This is how you're going to solve it. You're going to be able to split your estate up. And yeah, there might be an item or two that you have to burn, but it's all going to be good. Right. There's no critique. I agree. I think it's I think it's an, uh, a real object lesson, you know, that there shouldn't be this kind of, you know. I don't know that nowadays we have the same kind of lack of critique, put it that way. Uh, we, we, we certainly don't. And uh, and I think this really, you know, again, Tumen Tower was nothing to fool around with. Like, this was very serious stuff. You're talking about, you know, you have to burn Truma if it becomes tummy. No critique, no judgment. It's just telling you practically, how do you handle it? Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all, uh, all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.